Well, I, thanks I for having me. Yeah, I consider you to be um, a frenemy, I think. Frenemy? Because... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books podcast. Todd McGowan teaches Syrian film at the University of Vermont. He's a writer for publications such as Jump Cut. He's a YouTuber and the author of the new book, Emancipation After Hegel, Achieving a Contradictory Revolution. Welcome, Todd. Well, thanks for having me, Doug. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm really glad to have you on. You know, you're, you've become a celebrity on the Hegelian uh, side of YouTube. Uh, so it's not a big part of YouTube, but it's dedicated. <laughs> it's like part. five people. I guess, <laughs> right. um, so, yeah. And I also wanted to compliment you for writing for Jump Cut, uh, which it, I'm just going to, you know, I do this every interview these days. I don't know. I hit 50 and now I'm doing this. But in the 90s, back in the 90s, yeah. Jump Cut was a, a major place uh, to find uh, film criticism on from a left wing perspective. Uh, it, I always admired it and thought it was really radical and thought I got a lot of insights um, around about films and how to interpret films from reading Jump Cut. Yeah, and it's one. Of, I have to say, it's one of the only journals that where I've never been rejected. Like I usually get rejected a lot, but that the Jump Cut's always been very friendly to to theory, to my kind of philosophical whatever I'm doing with film. So that mm -hmm. I, it's been great. I, I love Jump. I, I think it's kind of nearing its end but um yeah, oh it's too bad yeah but yeah, it's, it's a good publication and i hope it doesn't end um yeah. now your book is touted as a way back to hegel after marx after the death of uh hegelian marxism um given that there's a right wing and a left wing hegel do you think hegelianism still provides a clear path politically well and how go ahead no, yeah, it's a good question. I, I do, and I, that's why I try to lay out in the book. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I one of my little gambits in the book was that the divide between the left and the right Hegelianism was a real, uh, I don't know, like a, a problem in the in the history of the reception of Hegel, and that I part of what I try to do is recuperate certain of those things that were associated with right wing Hegelianism for what I would call a, a left wing or genuine Hegelianism. So that that's that's part of what I, I'm trying to do in the book is to to say that what like getting rid of, for instance, like the Christian dimension of Hegel's thought to me is really important. His emphasis on the state, I think, is really important. And those were dismissed by all the left-wing Hegel, like Luke, but if I'm mean, starting with Marx, of course, but then and and then and then all the way through to Lukacs and Adorno and these figures in the 20th century. So that's so part of what I'm I'm thinking about is is Hegel against that division, like against that right, because I think right, I don't think I think right Hegelianism is just a total betrayal of Hegel, and I think uh, 
these things that got associated with the right actually are important for a left-wing project as I, as I see it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, the Christian aspect of Hegelian thought. Um, this is something that I've uh, been, I've debated. I, you know, I have a, a, a an interlocutor who is often on this channel with me, Derek Varn, and um, we have a, had a rocky history uh, through social media. So we've, been friends and broken up and we've been friends and we've broken up um and the first time we really had a blowout it was about how to interpret hegel and uh, <laughs> whether or not hegel was ultimately right wing and what it meant that there was a christian component uh to his thought and i said look there's a christian component to his thought but christianity is probably more radical than most of the left today uh, especially if interpreted through hegel um i don't think that's what caused him to to, to it was it was more of who quoted what correctly or something, but <laughs> uh, some small dick measuring thing that was right. Uh, right. Yeah. right, right, right. Um, but, uh, uh, but I, I do think that it's okay. Like, I don't, I don't disagree with you that um, there could be a, a liberatory or emancipatory aspect to the Christian Hegel, um, especially, you know, being familiar with Zizek, but tell me what, what you think it is about uh Hegelian Christianity, um, which is emancipatory. Well, a couple things. So I think the main thing is that he eliminates the idea of a beyond, so that so that he doesn't. He thinks that Christianity is the death of the beyond, so that the God of the beyond comes down to the here and the now. And I think that, to me, that I find something immensely radical about that. And I I, I think if you think of Christianity in those terms, then most of the people that call themselves Christian today would be heretical, right? Because they want to insist there's this God of the beyond that really knows what's going on and is guiding our lives or something something like that. And and, and I think that's for Hegel anathema to the Christian project. And, and, and he has this great line, which I, I quote in the book, and I really, I try to, I, I would put it above my on our top of my bed in the bedroom, if my spouse would let me, that the kingdom of heaven is on Main Street. And I think that that to me is like the really, like to think that is to think that radical notion that the beyond actually has to be figured into the here and now. So I, I for me, that's, that's, that's it. I mean, that's really, to me, the really radical component. And I think that's even a lesson for the left today, like not to dream about a beyond that's going to be radically different, but to shift the way in which the here and now functions, you know, and that, that that's really the leftist project to not to bring about a utopian tomorrow, but to change the, what the here and now is and how we live the here and now. So I, I, I guess for me, that's really that Christian dimension is just the guiding dimension and, and not, I don't think it necessarily has to be tied to faith. Like I don't really care about that. It's just, for me, it's, it's this, it's this how we relate to the idea of the beyond. And if, can we bring that back into the here and now? Well, in what way is Hegel different from uh, a, a maybe a pantheist like Spinoza? Then, if if what makes him radical is that rather than uh, there being a divine other realm that's apart from this universe, that you, we can find the divine in this universe. Right, right. So that so it's interesting because Hegel was, of course, influenced by Spinoza, but. The difference is that for for Hegel, the the, the and what 
Christianity shows is that the divine is cut. Like it is, it is lacking just like us. He has this line he repeats about five times in the preface of phenomenology in different formulations that substance is subject. And that for Spinoza, that would be absolute anathema because for Spinoza, subject is, su sorry, substance is one. And for Hegel, subject just means divided. Like, is it, it's, it's divided against itself. It's contradictory. So, so for Hegel, God is both the infinite and the finite. God is both the beyond and the here and now. And for and, and Spinoza, by making God completely imminent, there's no division within God, right? And so that for and, and there's no division within us for Spinoza either. Ultimately, well, and, I mean, the, the problem with Spinoza, uh, well, and I studied Spinoza as an undergraduate, right. so you know, uh, in fact, I studied all of philosophy in a you know in a collegiate setting as an undergraduate, but um, uh. The problem with Spinoza is that there is a division, ultimately, in his depiction of the substance of the universe. That, that, well, that because you can't, can't avoid it, he could not avoid that, right? right? right, right. And um, but when he uh, when he did when you discover that division, then his telling of of the the legalistic you know contract he writes to explain um, the world falls apart. I think uh, you right. can't really be a Spinozist. Uh, after encountering that difficulty in his work, um, which comes down to, from my perspective, the difference between the universal and the particular, that those things can't really coexist in a Spinozan uh, world. Right, um, right. But in, for Hegel, they not only can coexist, but in order for either to exist, the, the difference uh, between them is important. It's it, it's constitutive, right? Like that's the mm -hmm. difference, right? And it's constitutive. It makes that that there's no universality without particularity. There's no particularity without universality. Whereas I think you're right. Like Spinoza wants he wants there to be only universal, but he still wants to talk about particulars, which is you know right. Alexander Kozhev has this great line. He's a, he has a lot of great lines, but this great line that that the Spinoza system is exactly right, but no one could have ever written it. So, so that's, I think that that's exactly points to what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. So back to, um, uh, uh, Christianity being liberatory and, and, uh, where, how is Hegel not just an atheist then if he gets rid of, um, the beyond, well, and, because, and God, I guess, at the same time, almost right. Well, I don't think he wants to get rid of God. I mean, he was a he he had a Christian burial and was very insistent on that. And, and I think this is a different. I mean, Slavoj and I kind of go back and forth. Zizek and I go back and forth on this because he really thinks ultimately the only position true to Hegel is one of atheism. Whereas for me, I don't. I just don't think that I'm not. I don't really care about that. I don't really care if someone. And I, I I have a lot of dialogues with people that are believers and 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 are very committed to a certain leftist project. So I guess I guess that I think it's important for Hegel that just like I was saying that contradiction between the infinite and the finite that he wants to nonetheless even though God is brought down to the earth that, that, that you still have this tension within this divide like we're not. And I think this is why he's not Spinozist ultimately. Like even us, we're not just purely imminent beings. We're also transcendent beings. So that 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 tension between imminence and transcendence, I think, is where God resides for, for Hegel. And I think that's why he wouldn't say he was an atheist. Right. Um, uh, okay, let's bring this back down to 
back down to earth uh, get okay. rid of the be the beyond um I ask you how Hegelianism might provide a clear path politically, and I guess I should ask how does understanding the the contradictory nature of our lives and our and our reality uh, change, or how could it change our politics um, and and make uh, help shape an emancipatory politics? Can you give me an example, like for instance? Um, after the murder of George Floyd or after the uh, economic crisis of 2008 or after the pandemic began, how does a Hegelian approach to these kinds of problems shift the perspective? Um, yeah. You can take any one of those examples you want. Okay, that's a lot of good examples. <laughs> so, I actually think that the Black Lives Matter response to George Floyd was a Hegelian response, right? Because what did they say? They said, they said, I can't breathe. We're all George Floyd, right? Like they insisted upon this, what I would call a position of universality and the universality of we're all of the, we, we all don't belong. Like we're all part of, like I'm identified with that position of non-belonging. And I think that's the, I mean, you can see, like, look at the way in which the, what, what should I call it? The Obama Biden administration's response to the I'm looping in all these different things to uh, to, to the 2008 crisis. Like it wasn't like oh we're all in a position of non belonging that that recognizes this fundamental contradiction. No, it was like how can we get the capitalist economy rolling again? And so that's why the money goes to the banks and doesn't go to ordinary people, right? So I think that I mean so I think that would be those are two examples where I think the you can see responses that would be more in a Hegelian way and less in a in a way that tries to cover up contradiction. And that's what I, I for me, the key thing is that ideology, as I define it, is the attempt to hide, obfuscate contradiction. And so I think Hegelian politics is in many ways, a, it's trying to highlight contradiction. And so thus it's working against ideology. I think it's also necessarily against capitalism because I think Capitalism can only function. I talk about this a lot in the book because Ann Rand functions as a kind of a. I like Ann Rand just because I think she clarifies the capitalist position really nicely and 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 shows its philosophical underpinnings in a way that I think other other capitalist thinkers just have no idea about. Uh, and and one of the things she insists on is that A equals A, and that's for her. And and I think what's interesting is that that idea of like there is identity, and it just identity is identity. It just it just is. That that idea is actually integral to the capitalist system functioning, and if you see the way in which identity depends upon difference, then all of a sudden, uh, uh, you, capitalist exchange doesn't work anymore. So I think that would be one way that I think he, the Hegelian structure philosophy project poses a fundamental challenge to capitalism. Even well, okay, to you know the George Floyd protests had multi dimensions. One part of it was when people would say I can't breathe or we can't breathe at, at protests. Um, and that by the way, had been said, unfortunately before. Many times right? before, that was, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, uh, in fact, when, when George Floyd started shouting that, um, it, you know, maybe part of the reason I'm not making any excuses for anyone, but part of the reason why it didn't, 
uh, immediately like trigger a, a realistic, you know, appraisal of the situation was because it seemed like a protest when he was shouting it. Um, I mean, cut that part out, but you know, right. but right. but um, uh, but I, I I did note that on the when I heard it. But the the other thing is um, the primary message around the George Floyd protests were abolish the police and or defund the police mm -hmm. and um then there also was a, a desire to continue the rioting to make the rioting kind of almost institutionalized um and to per stretch it out as long as possible um and i i and there was a a perception amongst the more radical people involved in in those protests that there was a battle for the soul of the moment between uh, the Democrats who are coming in to try to lead peaceful protests and the more radical elements that were trying to be more uh, confrontational with the police and maybe smash windows or, or go places where they weren't allowed um, or even, you know, loot places. Um, and but all but there was no negation of the negation in that movement there was no there was just abolish this destroy that um and not uh a, a formulation of, of something new in in the moment um and i say that as someone who like was talking to yeah organizers now you know i'm not i'm not talking about <clears throat> the the center of black lives matter i'm talking about white college students <laughs> who i know right. um but um what do you make of that fact do you think if there had been more wrestling with the contradiction in the moment that uh something different would have come out of black lives matter other maybe than i mean i don't know that we know what came out of it yet right like i think it's still i think that's still up in the air but i do think that um i do think you're right that there wasn't a i mean i'm i'm a little <laughs> I, I i have friends that are really defund the police i kind of feel like that's a self-defeating position myself but um I, and I, I think what I think what you're getting at is crucial that th there has to be a way in which and this gets back to what I was saying about the the here and now like I think you have to it's it's not just like you're not going to have a permanent revolution like you have to think of a, you have to be thinking of way to structure like the how the society is going to be structured and I think I mean I think that there can what it would look like I don't know because I don't I don't who knows, who knows but I think there can be a way of of making that identification with with Floyd and and that 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 the 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 way in which the protest speaks, making that the basis of of like a political structure. But I I do think like one thing that that was troubling to me about, and I think maybe you'll agree with this, that about the 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 overall movement was that it it, it seemed like capital was on board and people accepted that capital could be on board. My my favorite but least favorite because I don't like it example of this is the NBA the way in which they put the protest on to, people could choose players could choose the back of their jersey to have like I can't breathe or freedom or equality or black lives matter or something and I thought you know really the NBA is on the side but they're not I mean like I think that it, it became this thing where the state the police was the enemy and and corporate America seem to be on i think most people interpret it people was on the side of the of the protesters but i think that they that, that cannot be correct that the the corporate america is part of what the black lives matter movement was actually protesting against because that 
that corporate structure depends upon racism much, I would contend, much more than the police actually do. So I think that my position would be, you know, and it's the NBA thing is interesting because the I don't know if you know this, but the, there were there were two things they wouldn't allow on the back of the jerseys. Do you know do you know what these are? No, they're, they're free Tibet or free Hong Kong, not allowed. So <laughs> well, yeah. okay, why? <laughs> right, why? Because it's capital, right? Like that's the thing. And so I I I, I mean, to me, that just shows that corporate the, the corporate the corporate world cannot be an ally. I guess the, the NBA is broadcast to China. Is that what? Well, they have huge. Yeah, it's broadcast yeah. to China, and they have huge. That's where they're seeing the future of their fandom. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> right. and, and one during the Hong Kong protests, one general manager made a mistake of saying we stand with the protesters, and, and the NBA lost millions of dollars. And so, even mm. LeBron James, who's a I I applaud him, very activist guy came down on this guy and said, don't you realize you're threatening all of our lives? So it's, you know, it, or livelihood. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, I think it's a, I think that that's one thing that needs to be clear in the struggle against racism, that it, it, it always has to be a struggle against capitalism. Otherwise it's, it's never to my mind, a gen it can't be a, an effective struggle against racism. Um, the thing about defunding the police is from, from my perspective, there's two problems with it. One, the uh, well, three. Um, one is that it's supposing that some other aspect of the state, like uh, you know, social workers or, or, or uh, um, NGOs or you know, some sort of uh, cadre of professionalized uh, cops, but cops of the mind, might be better. Than right. real cops, like right. okay, so now rather than uh, intervening only with violence at the last stage of the problem, we're going to be intervening with a slew of bureaucrats throughout the lives of the right. poor, right? right? right. <laughs> um, and and uh, we'll only bring the cops in at the very end, right. and but probably ineffectually, and probably you know crime rates will go up and their right. lives right. will be less secure and so so right. forth. There's that. Uh, the the, uh, the other problem is that. If we defund the police, that will mean the people for people who can afford it that there'll be more private police. Right. right. Um, so there's there's that problem, and then the the final thing is it, it su suggests that um, we are in a position where the government uh, has to the very most you know government spending has to remain stable. So you're going to increase the amount of social workers or programs for the poor or for, you know, uh, precarious communities. Well, then you have to take it from some other part of the budget. So all of it's, you know, it's very, yeah, yeah, very yeah. constricted vision of defunding the police. I, I, I totally agree. I, 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 I mean, I, I think it also like the, the number of people for whom that's a appealing position to is very small. So I think you're, it's, yeah. that's why I think it's self-defeating as well. Like it, it just, but it, I don't think it was ever meant to be a real part of the Democratic Party platform. Yeah. But there was this uh, the riots and abolish the police was out there in the streets. So what do you do? You tweak that into something that sounds like a policy proposal. Right. And you get operatives out there leading marches under the banner of defund the police. People can still feel like they're radical. But not only are they radical, they're more practical than these young folks over here. Right. Um, my problem with abolish the police is that you 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 they haven't thought it through 
as to what all will have to happen to be able to actually abolish the police. What what contradictions would have to be overcome or changed to to actually abolish the police? But I like abolish the police a little better if it's thought through. But then abolish the police a police seems to me you have to that has to become not a, a protest movement in the street, but a reading group. I mean, right. and I think it, don't you think it would have to be abolish capital before you abolish the police? I mean, yeah, would yeah. it would have to. Like, you could start with abolish the police and then get to abolish capital, right? But in your mind, in, in your individuals, mind, right. in individuals, you know. Right. Uh, right. Um, okay, well, so this leads me a little sooner than I would have thought into the question of um, Marx and mm -hmm. and and abolishing capital um and your critique of marx because one of the things you charge marxists with is the uh, problem of believing that the contradictions in society can ultimately be overcome and that we could create an a equals a or self-transparent right. classless society and that that would was marx's aim um I'm not sure I agree. You don't think that's his aim? Yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's his aim. I do think that the Marxist project certainly may have had that as, as its aim at times. The utopian socialists obviously had that as their aim. Mm -hmm. um, the, the difficulty is that I do think he wants to create a classless society. Sure, but not one that's unmediated or without some sort of universal contradiction. But I, but I don't think that Marx ever really put forward a clear way to overcome the contradictions within the the, the class society and and replace it. Right, um, right, right. I mean, um, I think he he. He does say that Bourgeois, I mean, I'm just taking this from the, the, the famous preface to the contribution to the critique of political economy, right? He does say mm -hmm. that the bourgeois system of, of the, the system of bourgeois society is the last antagonistic economic system in the history of the world, right? So, I mean, he does, he does, I mean. Yeah, you know, that doesn't mean it's the last antagonistic system of the world. It's the last antagonistic economic system of the world. That's not the same. Thing. No, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say economic. He says just the last antagonistic system. Oh, does he? He does say that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, I, I I need to pull. Now we're going to get into this territory where it's a matter of pulling up quotes. You know how dangerous yeah, yeah, that yeah. can no, be I'm for a friendship. I, have even that <laughs> I, don't, care. I don't care. No, but no, no. But I mean, you're probably. I mean, I'm sure you're right that that he says that. Um, and in 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 context. Um, it may might not mean what we think, but if he was talking about the realm of the economy, then it takes a different. It means something a little different than. Uh, I agree. Then I agree. It's not yeah. uh, completely utopian then, because what he's saying. Well, first of all, it's only under capitalism that we start to think of the world as economic. Uh, right. You know, the economic sure. man is born. Sure. Um, uh, but but from that pr perspective, you can look back at the rest of history and see that it was too economic, it, that right. it also had a class system. Um, but now the e economy uh, is driving social relations in a way that it didn't in the past. And so um, and I think socialism 
is about self-transparency. It is about uh, 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 coming to an understanding of our own uh, responsibility for the relations that produce our world. Right. But it doesn't mean that the big, once we understand our responsibility, that we will then be able to produce the world as we like it. Right. Without unintended consequences, without um, contradictions, without uh, without going off course, we will always end up somewhere other than where we aimed to be, uh, I think. But that doesn't mean that that we can't overcome class especially if you're thinking about class in terms of a system where the exploitation of human labor produces a an, a, an abstract value yeah. that is embodied in commodities that are then distributed in the market you know all that totally agree. yeah totally. could be changed yeah totally um, but how you know that's the the real difficulty for the marxist project and then you know even if you conceive of uh, how in some like a science fiction writer would, like I would, because I wrote a book that tried to do that. <laughs> uh, um, you the making making that vision into a political project um, is very difficult. Uh, so that brings us back to to Hegel's a way of thinking. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the 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 problem I think I have with Hegelian approaches to politics, including Zizek's. And again, I, I really love Zizek. I've talked to him a couple of times. I've read him. I've watched his lectures, the same ones over and over again. <laughs> well, one is kind of the same one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, I may not have watched them over and over right, again. Maybe right, I right. watched different ones. But, different but, ones. <laughs> but, um, I say that as a, in a friendly way. Right. right. Uh, uh, but I also would consider him to be a friend of me, too. Okay. Uh, okay. Just like you, because okay. he is not Marxist enough, and I've you know I've 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 talked to him about it. Um, so I guess my question for Hegelians is: Okay, you have this understanding of contradiction that's philosophical and, and in some ways political, but it, it seems to me that it leaves us in a position where if we're going to change our relationships with. Uh, our own conceptions, that will be enough. While what Marx is saying is, look, our conceptions are in the world. Our right. conceptions are now not only in the world, they're dominating us. They're alienated from us. This is operating outside of our, our, our conceptions. Our conceptions are warped by this thing that's out there operating right. capital. And um, I feel like the Hegelians like Zizek, kind of just accepts that that's going to just keep going forever that that commodity production the market all of that capitalism it, ultimately i think he's a fukuyama uh, Fuki, he's with fukuyama on on that question not on everything yeah on he's very question. critical of fukuyama though. yeah but fukuyama and and zizek lately have had the same politics they're both bernie sanders supporters they both want to see the increase of social spending and the and the, the uh, rising up of social democracy they're both worried about the corruption of the state um uh so uh, you know and so anyway so i mean yes well, well wait a minute doug but you can't you can't so so if if like i'm a supporter of bernie sanders too so, <laughs> well so, so was i a while ago okay well, now but, I'm, but, but now i'm mad right so okay fuck that okay, guy <laughs> But I don't think that, like, like I don't think you can. I mean, I, I guess this is this is maybe too real politique for you. But I, I mean, I 
I have an ultimate political vision. And then I have like short term things that I want, I think can like help help on the way to that political vision. And I don't feel like if I support Bernie Sanders that I'm betraying my my socialism. Like I feel like, oh, I'm trying to find a way to help move that in that direction. So I don't think you can say, oh, because you're you're supporting Sanders and he, you know, and, and I, I mean, I no, think I was just pointing out that Fukuyama, okay. I think also supported Bernie Sanders. Okay. Okay. And that if you had a, and, and you have to then ask like, okay, you can, you can do the same thing for different reasons. Um, and you know, maybe that's that having a different, uh, incentive, you know, having a different motive will change th what the meaning of the thing is in the real world. Um, uh, but when it comes to Bernie Sanders, I don't think people were very serious about people who call themselves socialists or communists were very serious about asking how will this, if the victory of Bernie Sanders be different than the victory of Syriza, or how will right. the victory of Bernie Sanders uh, actually be a, 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 a step towards more radical reforms what is what are radical reforms today what would be actually a, a kind of reform that would empower but and then we have to ask like what what do we think would be necessary to change the mode of production and the conditions of society and liberate the working class yeah, we yeah. don't have an agreement on any of that really right now well so, i don't even think there's a there's much of an idea on that right like i don't think i don't think i haven't heard anybody like offering any ideas about what that would actually entail? Like I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm utterly for. I think capitalism is a is a nightmare that from which I'm trying to awaken. But I'm, I don't necessarily have a like a one, two, three step that I think we could employ to get out of it. Right. Like, I mean, I but you know, like in 1919, though they did. You know, they they had ideas about uh, what was necessary, what you, you know, and it was, and there were also con lots of debates about like, okay, what should our relationships with the unions be like, who should be allowed to have leadership positions within the unions, but not within the union bureaucracy, but within the radical unions, uh, and, and should they all be from the party or could they be, do they all have to be workers and, you know, that kind of, all these kind of things. And, and then those questions weren't like, purity tests they were no, like, okay, yeah. like who's going to implement our line yeah. and how can we make sure that they're not going to de deviate and get right. sucked back into the bourgeois uh, apparatus right. um so uh and so yeah they had the, the we don't we're not thinking on that level now and one of the ways we're not thinking on that level is by uh continuing to think that uh for instance, the problem with the working class right now is that it comes down to their how their desire is dictating their actions at work and their acceptance and you know like a Lacanian analysis of the sur of surplus and yeah. which I think goes way off the rails when it comes to the this alienated force that really is not part of our psychological makeup anymore. It's out there in the world. It's not. It, it dictates what we're like, but it, it isn't influenced by what our psychology is. If we decide, if we became enlightened Buddhists tomorrow, um, it wouldn't change anything about the way capitalism functions. Or if we all understood how important contradictions are, it wouldn't change anything about. I mean, I'm 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 going to stop talking and let you talk now. You really <laughs> think that? You really think that? Um, 
our like no matter what our yeah i just disagree with that like i think our like our invest i think that i think for one thing i think that that even the system of money depends on the faith that we have in it and i think that the capitalist system depends utterly on the faith that people have in it and i so i think that actually uh defeating that like breaking down that faith is a major is a major see i don't think so and here's my argument against that when there is massive inflation and the currency becomes completely without value and everyone knows it money doesn't stop operating just other things step in to function as money because the source of the value of money is the work that's being done in production and the commodities that are being produced and money is a necessary universal within that system, regardless of what our attitudes are about money. It's like, you know, everybody in the country could tomorrow decide, uh, have an epiphany. Oh, money's just paper. They'd still need it because the way we produce things actually only will function through that mediation regardless of, of our own subjective attitudes about it. No, I, I agree with that. But 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 you said they'd still need it because they if they wanted things to function. But if they didn't want things to function, well but we, we, we have to have productive work. We have to come together to reproduce ourselves every day. And if things stop functioning, well that's when the cops come. That's when the army comes. That's when and that's when we're all glad to see them. Yeah. You know you know, that's if you if you can't just have. Yeah, the, the I, I don't but I don't totally I don't disagree totally with what you're saying. I mean, I think that that's I think there's that a lot of what you're saying is right. But I just think that the that one of the things we have to defeat is the faith in capitalism. Like like I, 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 I take what you're saying about money, but I do think like that capitalism requires us like it requires us to believe in the the in the possibility of accumulating, right? Like if it, if we didn't believe in that, and if we didn't believe that there was something of value to accumulate, then you would just like, then that would stop the capitalist system from functioning. Like, like, like that, it depends upon people invested in that idea. And so to get, like, I think that was one of the great things about Marxism, that it got a lot of people invested in a different idea like a different way of thinking about like, like people thought, well, we don't have, we, we're going down this one path. We don't have to do that. We can do something totally different in a collective way, not in this, you know, well, atomistic that, way. That's the, the other weird thing about Marxism is that it didn't arise as something separate from capitalism or it did, right. but not something separate from bourgeois society. Which right. to be more general, like so, you know, it came out of 1848, which was a struggle against the autocratic old, you know, regimes that were right. barely hanging on, and an, an attempt to be, create republics and democracies and and a new bourgeois class power, and to modernize. Right, right. right. All of that was happening at the same time in an uneven way, and and 1848 was about that. But the idea was also what came along with that. Was like, and we can have socialism. Right, like, right. We don't have to have this uh, poverty and we don't have to have these terrible conditions. We, and we can create a common uh, society. But that didn't 
that and that was actually the vision of the bourgeois society right and right the, certain the, figures for sure yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. so like marx thought oh well you know capitalism is the most liberatory system in the world it's it's smashing all the old right. ideas and and it's creating um uh, a, a, a new world, uh, but the, the final contradiction, it will never realize itself without the working class taking right. power. But the idea was you first had to create the working class. Right. right. Like in, in, in the Soviet Union, even Lenin thought, okay, the goal is first to industrialize with capitalism. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then we can join Europe in a global revolution. Right, right. I mean, I think people don't, I th I mean, a lot of people who are in the know know this, but like the new economic policy is a very capitalist invested policy, right? Like, right. Clearly, I mean, it was, it's not only that, but even before that, it's just like they, he did not think that the next step was going to be proletariat power, socialism. It, it They just, they didn't even have, they had to get, to bourgeois society first right, and, right. and capital first. Right. But yeah, then certainly the, I mean, I, I believe that the Soviet Union the whole way through was state capitalist because they were still, there was still a wage relation. They were still producing commodities. They, they didn't, they may have had it through the state, but they didn't have, it wasn't like, it wasn't free enterprise, but it was still capital that was being produced. That's my position. Right, but, he, but, but Stalin did collectivize. I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there was, but so does GE. You know, <laughs> you know, so do yeah, yeah, every yeah, yeah, big yeah. monopoly right. takes, uh, takes, uh, expropriates, you know, the means of production. And but not but for the sake of profit. I mean, Stalin didn't, didn't. Well, I mean, Stalin figure. had to keep going. Well, you know, actually we're not beyond value production. Right. Everybody right. needs to accept that, which is creating a, 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 a profit. It isn't private profit, but it's profit that then gets reinvested into expanding the production right right for sure yeah so i mean you know this is something that marxists debate all the time and like, right i'm i'm heretical when it comes to this position but 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 yeah so i'm just like okay so i do think that this is a critique of hegelianism in a way i do think there's something objective um and outside about capitalism but that we keep reproducing it in our active work every day in the yeah, way i don't know why do you think that's a not i don't think Hegel, i don't think Hegel's I, I don't I, I think marx was a hegelian but i okay. think he was but i think the but i don't think hegel was a marxist no i know but i mean because he just hegel had no understanding of capitalism i mean there's just right. none at all like there's really no theory um which is why i i've said to you we, we were exchanging missives and i i said like look i think it is true that like Marx's understanding of capital is unsurpassable, right? Like that, that, I mean, he really gets something that Hegel just didn't get. And, but, but I do think that the notion that, that what we're doing objectively is actually driving the, the, our movement in this society and not what we think. I think that's a perfectly Hegelian. I don't think that that's something Hegel wouldn't think. No, I, I agree. I agree. But, 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 um, I I would just say that when you uh, when you drop the the Marxist project of overcoming I'm going to say commodity production and think of it in terms instead of of uh, uh, understanding the contradictory nature of our society um, and the and the need for contradiction 
I just think you're taking a, a half step back from radical politics and maybe it's necessary strategically or, um, well, uh, let's, let's talk I, about, let's well, talk about the 13th that? floor. Okay. I'm happy. Like, I think that, I think that, that I would just say this, that, that recognizing the necessity of contradiction is the way to overcome commodity. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. So that's, I, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. agreeing. I would agree with you there because, yeah, because too many people think, well, what we do is we take the factories or we smash them and then we'll have a way of life that will be organic. You know, we're already the people that that could be free if it weren't for these others, if it wasn't for the capitalist class or if it wasn't for the cops or if it wasn't for the state. So, yeah, I want to ask you actually one thing I, I, I want to ask you about the second right wing part of Hegel. So let's do that instead of the 13th floor, but okay, I do. Well, wanna... I, I want to do 13th floor. Cause I love that film. So yeah, I do too. It's, I don't think it's a great movie, but yeah. I love it, you know, and especially for the scene you mentioned in your YouTube video, where he goes out to the city and sees uh, uh, something about that works and it really, really well. He sees yeah. the, the grid that creates reality. Yeah. Um, that he sees that he's in a virtual world and has been all along. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And by the way, like in 2013, I, I think it was around that time, I wrote a piece about the 13th floor as a way to understand Hegel for tour.com. Oh, so I just great. want to make sure you've never, you've never read that, right? I've never read it, but I will read it. I will so read it for sure. We think alike. Um, uh, but okay, the state. What now? Why are you? Why do you think that Hegel's position on the state isn't right wing, but is? Oh, I don't think it's right wing at all. I mean, I think that he, because if if you read what's fascinating to me about philosophy of right, where it's basically where he articulates his his idea of the state, is that he. So he, he he. I did say he doesn't understand doesn't understand capitalist society. It's true, but there is he does have an analysis of it a little bit in philosophy of right. And he calls it civil society. So that's just his name. He had read Adam Smith. So he had some sense of, of what was going on. And so, and, and what, what I think is fascinating is that he puts the state after. So, so in, in Hegel's philosophy, you know this, but I'm just going to say it. Um, what comes after is always what's more concrete and what's more significant, more important. So, so the state comes at the end of philosophy of right civil society has to be, he thinks, like it, it necessarily produces these things that it can't deal with, like he, what he calls the, the pebble or the rabble. Uh, and, and it requires the state to, to intervene and, and correct that. So I guess for me, what I, what I really like about that is this notion that, and, and for him, the state is, the, is, the, is, is, a, is our collectivity. Like, it's, like that's how he theorizes it. The state is not this external thing that's imposed upon us, which is, I think, how most people conceive the state today. But the, for, for Hegel, the state is our, our own. It's an expression of, of, of everyone. And it's, it's collective. And I think civil society, as he understands it, is, ad, is always atomized and individual. And the collective structure of the state has to come over and has to trump that in the end. And I think for me, that that's the, that's this, collectivist sense of Hegel that really gets expressed in this, in this, in, and, and that, that it would articulate itself in a state structure. I think that's, I mean, it, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily the bourgeois state. I guess for me, I don't see any reason why state has to be tied to 
capitalism or bourgeoisie, that it can be this articulation of some collectivity. And if you don't want to call it state, I don't even care. But I, I think it's some understanding of the collective, right? Well, I mean, if as you, a public, you, and that's the thing, I, I want to say that it's very important that civil society is a private, you're there as a private individual, but in the state, you're there as a public, you're made public. And I think to me, the priority of the public over the private is the essential Hegelian idea. And that, I mean, I think that's obviously in line with Marx too, but mm. I think that's a key, a key thing. Yeah. Okay. So the state is um, the product of, of humanity, of, of the atomized civil society um, in the same way that God is the product of the Christian uh, believers, maybe, you know, like you can't, like, it's not that, it's just like uh, Feuerbach would say that God is simply the projection, uh, projection, right. but it's actual, the real uh, universal connecting believers that, right. and um, so what I would say is like, if you think that we need a universal, we need universalized mediation of our relations in order to exist um as a community and as at all really i agree like you know uh aristotle i think said like you know before there were individuals in society there was society society right. had to come first right. um and i i totally agree with that and i um uh but i do think that the state as we know it today relies on you know the same on, on capital and and services capital which is why you know for marx the 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 state um is uh, an institution of the of the ruling class right. that's why right. you need a dictatorship of the proletariat right. which would actually transform the state um but the but i do agree with you about that the other thing that's interesting about the civil society being atomized is that you know it I didn't think it is, but it didn't. It didn't really exist when it was a peasant society in feudal right. times, right? Right. right? So, um, I just did a video about uh, neurosis, neurosis as uh, something that historically developed mm -hmm. rather than something that's just innate to humanity. Yeah. Um, Charles Grodin died, and I, I used him as an example of a neurotic. And yeah. But the thing about neurosis is, uh, I was very sad about that, by the way. <laughs> I was too, and he was. You know, it's not like he was a young man. But, right. but I'm a bit, I didn't know how big a fa fan I was of Charles Grodin I know. until he died. My kids um, are always, you know, teasing me. My youngest is still at home. Um, well, both, two of my kids are still at home. Uh, but uh, he did yesterday. He said, oh, well, wait, this guy died. How come you don't love him? <laughs> don't you <laughs> love everybody who died? And I was like, well, um, not not absolutely everyone, but they, it does make them better if they're dead. Sometimes. He was, I tell you, Midnight Run was a great, is a great yeah, performance. Yeah. I liked it at the time, but watching it again it didn't hold up. Huh? No, it was better. Oh, good. And I thought at the time, right. at the time, it was in the context of there being a lot of movies like that one. Right. right? right. It was one of a string of these buddy movies. And it was better than the others, but it was of that. But then right. now all of that's gone. Like this kind of yeah. movie is yeah. gone. Yeah. And so it's like this stands up as a, an exemplar of a kind of film that isn't made anymore because yeah. there aren't superheroes in it. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I thought he was great in that. I saw him in, I watched Real Life with Albert Brooks. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was, he's 
really good in that. He's, he's great very, in Heaven Can cool. Wait too. He, he he's really, really good in Heaven. Yeah, yeah, in Heaven Can Wait, he's hilarious. Yeah. He's um, yeah. I so anyway, but the thing about the neuro neurotic is that I think that. You know, the neurotic is atomized, uh, born into a nuclear family, cut off from the community, relying on the mother and father for his identity, uh, bound to be a conformist and anxious to to please them because they themselves are fractured at, by the society they're in, blah, blah, blah. And yet freer than the peasant farmer's kid. Yeah. More, you know, actually a, a step towards more emancipation. Yeah. to be neurotic, and, yeah. you know, <clears throat> which is why Charles Grodin is a liberatory figure. <laughs> you know, just why I, I, you know, like that's. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely um, agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Agree. I mean, I, I think it's a very Hegelian idea that as you're, you're actually alienated into your freedom, right? Like, like as the, the peasant is too close to their social order, right? They're not alienated enough from that order. Like they're just part of it. And I think, you know, that's why Socrates is this great figure of like presaging modernity, right? Because he's the he's the first member of Greek society not to belong to this. Like he doesn't fit. He doesn't fit, and so that not fitting, it, it's painful. But it's also just like you're saying, it's much freer than the person who fits perfectly within what their society demands of them. Yeah. So I, yeah, I totally, I mean, I, I totally agree. So like, I, I feel like here's, here's what people should do is they should pick up your book, read it and then read capital. <laughs> okay. well, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, but I do think that Marxist Marxism itself has a tendency to be, to does, have this vision of a society without contradiction at all. Like class is the final contradiction in right, society. Right. But I think if we believe that, then we have a blank slate in our future. We don't have uh, that cannot be filled in. I also think I don't know, Doug, what you think about this, but I do think that that I don't think this is why it happened. But I think it does license a kind of Stalinist certain like. If, if we really, I, I think I say this in the book, like if we, and this is, by the way, Merleau-Ponty, if you know this book, Humanism and Terror, which I think is actually pretty well argued, even though it's a horrific conclusion. Um, he says like, look, if we really are going to create a classless society without any, or not just classless, but a society without any contradiction at all, a few million dead, eh, you know, like, I mean, that's his point. And I, you can kind of see the logic. And I think, I think, but if you insist on the necessity of contradiction, then like every person that you kill, and maybe you have to kill some people, right? Like mm -hmm. revolutionary change is violent. Capitalism is violent. It's killing people every day. So, you know, who's to say that revolutionary change is going to be perfectly pacifistic, but you still have to think like, I have to do this. And I, there's no ultimate end that's going to, that's going to make this, totally go away and i think that to me that's a really crucial like insisting on the, the absolute necessity of contradiction makes like every violent choice like you have to weigh it you know you can't just to say like i've got this blank check yeah there's no great beyond that justifies our actions exactly it's always exactly. yeah right. i totally agree with that i don't think i mean maybe stalinism on some level it was justified by that great beyond ideologically i think absolutely you know, the communist... I'm not trying to say that was the cause of it, right? Well, just... it, yeah, I mean, ideologically, it, sir, it certainly might have been the reason why it could be as brutal right. as it was. Right. The fact that it didn't become socialism 
was something else, right? right like right, the, right, right? But right. but the brutality of of Stalinism was certainly serviced by this vision of oh well it's all you know we're just servants of history the, right. the great communist future right. is before us and um where there'll be pie in the sky every day or whatever yeah, right? Right. <laughs> when right. we die thanks for watching this zero books video if you enjoyed it subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video you should also consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books book club and help us to continue making online content from the left.